I'm going to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at the first chapter, and, uh, and as I said, I think last week, uh, I'm going to take a pause. We've got two, two messages into Revelation, and, and now we're in the Christmas season. It just seemed appropriate to kind of set that aside until the new year, and we'll start unpacking that together. But for now, uh, between now and uh, Christmas Day, we're going to look at uh, different characters in the, uh, in the incarnation story. So we're going to look this morning at Matthew chapter 1. Our text is 18 through 24. I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles. Matthew chapter 1, 18, really through the end of the chapter. Now let's give our attention to God's Word being read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. I invite you to pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help in this time. Father, our prayer, even as we sang, show us Christ. We're asking that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And those, that wonderful thing, the pinnacle, the point of your written revelation is to show us your Son, our Savior. So we pray, do that now. God, I know that the real work is not my study my preparation, the real work that happens here is your spirit. So, Father, my job is to be faithful to this text. And, God, we're asking your spirit to plant this word deep within us and accomplish the work that only you can do by your word. For the glory of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Well, I've never read Dickens' classic Great Expectations. Maybe you've read that. I have not. Uh, but its theme, I think we're, we're familiar with the kind of theme it is. It's not something we're unfamiliar with in both fiction and, in fact, in real life. And however or wherever you began your life journey, when you became a thinking person, when you started to think about what your life would be and what you wanted it to become, you had some kind of vision for the future. Even if it was a simple one, family perhaps, children, uh, a particular education, maybe career goals, things perhaps that you'd want to possess. 
And maybe, just maybe, your life turned out exactly as you had envisioned. But I think for many along the way, we find that there are detours, roadblocks, things that get in the way. And, and maybe, maybe you were in a place where, the, where you found that your hopes and dreams were entirely dashed. In those moments, it's difficult. As Christians, though, it is only often in looking back that we can see good. Well, as we're approaching that day when Christians traditionally recognize the incarnation of the Son of God, that first Advent, as we approach that day, the appearing of the Christ, the Word of God enfleshed, it's such a, a beautiful celebration that we, we've sung about this morning and, and, and exulted in. It, that single event, it is the greatest expectation fulfilled and, and specifically for us as believers in Jesus because it makes every other longing, every other expectation that we might have ever, ever had, it makes those things a mere footnote in the grand narrative that God intervened in human history to save his own people who had been estranged from him by their sin. So as I said, for the next few weeks, I, I want to put a focus on, on the various passages of Scripture that tell the incarnation story. And I want us to think of, of the revelation of the Messiah. Thank you, Paul. I want us to think about the revelation of the Messiah through the experience of different characters that God had used in his plan to reveal the Messiah. So as, as you can See, I think, from this, from this passage of Scripture, we want to consider that from the perspective of Joseph and his great expectation. And as we look closely at this Bible story, I, I want to organize uh, our meditation this morning under three headings, and they're just simple ways for me to kind of think through this. First of all, there's Joseph's good plan. Next, there's God's better plan. And finally, God's redemptive mercy, his redemptive mercy. First, as we begin to unpack this, Joseph's good plan. Now, we get the difference between ordinary and extraordinary. I think we know the difference, right? So that quick dinner that you have before you run out of the house and take your kids to sports practice or, or maybe before you come to the prayer meeting tomorrow night, there's a shameless plug for that. Um, that meal would likely be rather Ordinary. Grilled cheese, some soup, we're out, right? But you know, there's that special dinner, that dinner that you have saved that gift card from, I don't know, the committee in Blackstone or some other nice place. And you, you've planned for that and you, you go there and you know that's just an extraordinary dining experience. We get the difference between ordinary and extraordinary. The way I play hockey, or used to a month ago, before my whatever. I have to lament the loss of that now. But I'm, I'm an ordinary middle-of-the-pack beer league hockey player, but I'm, I'm not anything compared to, to Austin Matthews or John Tavares. And only Leaf fans know that, but I'm going to put those names in there anyway. I'm hopeful for the Leafs, but those guys are extraordinary, extraordinary in those skills in their skills, and they demand multi-million dollar contracts. Extraordinary. We get the difference, right? 
But let's face it. I think, and I don't mean to diminish anybody in the room, most of us are rather ordinary, I think. Extraordinary people are, are rarities. And prior to the angelic vision that Joseph had, we could just look at his life and say that he was a rather ordinary Jewish man with rather ordinary Jewish plans. Now, we don't know a lot about Joseph. Very little is said of him in the Scripture. We, we know he was a carpenter, and we find that out really later in chapter 13 because Jesus there is identified as the carpenter's son. So that's, that's how we know. He worked with his hands, and he built tables and chairs and fixed doors, I, I, I suppose. We also know that he had a good Jewish pedigree earlier in the chapter, beginning of this chapter, I should say. We know that he's in the line of King David. But really, that wasn't that extraordinary. Given the number of generations since David, that would literally be tens of thousands who could claim that lineage. And Joseph's life, it, it presumably involved a, an ordinary young woman. Verse 18 tells us, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed, to Joseph. Now, we're told this is a story about Jesus, but we're putting the focus here for my purposes this morning on Joseph. Joseph, Mary, was betrothed to him, promised to him. Now, that betrothal in first century Judaism was really a very much a, a formal and legally binding union. And it's very different, really, in, uh, in, in the way in which we think about a, a present-day engagement in our traditions. In our traditions, at least from a Christian perspective, there certainly would be chastity, and there should be. But really that time is to get to know one another at a deeper emotional level. There's an opportunity there in the, the, the engagement to, to learn if, if the plans and priorities are compatible. And I have counseled with quite a number of couples who were planning to be married but who have decided to call it off. And that's okay. And that's, in fact, good. Better to do that during the engagement time than, than find out once you're married that's like, this is not going to work out. Well, the first century betrothal was very much different. That couple would be considered husband and wife. Now, they wouldn't live together. They wouldn't be intimate until the formal marriage ceremony. But they were married for all intents and purposes. And to break that betrothal was akin to divorce. A very serious, a very serious thing. Now we're also told in, in verse 19 about Joseph that he was a just man. In the Greek, it's dikaios. Some translations will say righteous. Now we're told this, of course, in relation to how he behaved towards Mary that he was righteous. But I would suggest to you that he would not be particularly righteous if he were not generally righteous or just. And that he was, I would say this description of him was that he was a morally upright man. And in Jewish society, he would have lived in a way that was obedient to the law of God. And like other men, other upright men in his day, he would have been reared in the synagogue tradition. He would have had a, a, a training in Torah, the law. And he would have observed the Jewish festivals and ordered his life around God's promises. That would be 
That would be Joseph, a, a righteous man. And he was righteous, and I would put this in as well, that he was righteous in the sense that Abraham was righteous. Joseph believed God. Joseph believed God, and so it was the same way it was for Abraham, the same way it has been since the beginning of time, the same way it is for us, credited with righteousness by God through faith in his promises. But again, Joseph, an ordinary Jewish man who made ordinary plans to wed and to make an ordinary life with Mary. And of course, let's presumably have children. That was expected to lead his family in the law, raise them to fear God, and wait, wait for the eternal promises of God to be revealed as his own purpose for existence, to say, I'm oriented towards the Lord. So let's say this. It was a good plan. Joseph made a good plan. It was a righteous plan, very much in keeping with God's purposes. Now, I've said this a few times. This passage isn't primarily about Joseph, but we can certainly learn something from him. We can learn something from Joseph, how he ordered his life, how God had prepared him providentially to envelop into his life his saving plan, that saving plan which would be for all people. God uses ordinary people. And if you're ordinary this morning, and that's not a bad thing, know that God can use you. So what's the exhortation? I think we can take one. Just be righteous. As you make your plans, be righteous. And what that means is that you order your life around trusting in God's promises. Live a life of faith and faithfulness. Faithfulness to the Word of God. Faith in Christ specifically. And do this. Make righteous plans, plans that honor God. Order your life around worship. Now you're here. It's, it's like preaching to the choir. You're here, and that's, that's a good thing. But I, I think you know this. To get here, you had to plan to be here. Plan to order your life in this way. Because there's a million other things that you could do and be tempted to do that would require your time. Steward the resources and, and the abilities that God has entrusted to you and serve God and others with joy. That's a righteous plan. That's a good plan. Be generous toward God and toward others and, and determine to live, to live your life in your community, to work your job with diligence and, and integrity and, and to raise your children in such a way that brings glory to God. Make a righteous plan and, and carry it out. And let me say this children you know we don't church for kids today but the great temptation if you're exposed to the culture and some of you have maybe being homeschooled you're more protected but at some point in time the temptation is as children growing into preteen years to idolize pop stars celebrities and sports heroes and let me say this kids those people are not worthy of your worship children seek what's eternal learn to love God, learn to love his word and learn to love God's people. And young men and women of marrying age or as you anticipate that, maybe later teen years, it is an honorable thing 
Hear me on this, because the world doesn't say this. It's an honorable thing to seek a godly spouse. The world very much diminishes that ideal. It's an honorable thing to raise your children in the training instruction of the Lord. And as it regards life ambition, the world puts all things, kinds of things before us. It's like, oh, this would be great. We need this or that. As a life ambition, having a family, marrying a godly person and having a family I believe that's more significant and world-changing than, than being some extraordinary talent in art and sport and science. So, like Joseph, make good plans. Make righteous plans. It is commendable to have an ordinary, godly life. In fact, the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy in his first letter. He exhorted him, and by extension the whole church, to be praying, pray for all people, and pray for the authorities, pray for those who are governing over us, to what end? He wrote this, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So, plan and be prepared to witness and to, to work for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's a Joseph's good plan. And we should make good plans. But let's get to the next section, which is God's better plan. God's better plan. You, I'm sure you've heard that, uh, that saying uh, attributed to Yogi Berra, when you see a fork in the road, take it. It's really absurd and very unhelpful advice. But I think most of us here can identify with the necessity as you're doing life, the necessity of directional changes, right? Directional decisions. I was going here, but I got to go there. And sometimes, sometimes those decisions are very much forced on us because the road you are taking, and we're speaking metaphorically here, but the road you are taking becomes washed out or, or permanently blocked. And the intended destination is now just humanly impossible. I think we've all been there. Well, Joseph's life was about to get extraordinary, but what that would involve would be an unexpected change of plans. So the text tells us in the second part of verse 18, and we've already read this together, before they came together, Mary was found to be with child. Now, I don't know how long before the official marriage ceremony. I don't know how long. I don't know how long until they were preparing to make a house home together. We don't know. We don't know how long Joseph had to wrestle with this news. When he found out, was it days or weeks or month or two? But somehow, somehow it had become obvious to him. Maybe she was, as they say, showing. Maybe she herself tried to explain that angelic announcement to him. Perhaps Mary's father had informed Joseph, look, this is what's going on, you need to know. And even if the reason, okay, follow me in this, even if the reason had been fully explained to Joseph by Mary herself, understandably, I think it would have been very hard to believe. Now, parents, put yourself... In Joseph's shoes, your unmarried daughter comes to you, tells you she's 
pregnant and with the explanation, I've never been with a man conceived by the Holy Spirit. Excuse me? You're going you're to blame God for this? Now, today, it's actually entirely plausible, right? You're unmarried, never been with a man-daughter, could indeed, with medical technology, be with child. There'd still be a man involved, even if he's completely unknown. But in the first century, this whole idea would just absolutely be laughable. You, I'm, I'm trying to get into the sandals of Joseph and how this thing feels. Now, we, the readers, are given this very immediate explanation, right? The Bible tells us that Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we've already got relief. But Joseph doesn't yet. And whatever he's told, he has come to the conclusion in his own mind. There's this proverbial fork in the road. What's he going to do? He's got to make some decisions. So he does. Verse 19, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So that revelation that, that Mary is pregnant, there's only one logical conclusion in his mind. Joseph has to assume. He is assuming. She's been unfaithful. She has acted immorally with some other man. Now, we're told here that Joseph is just. That means he's upright and law-abiding. But it's not merely that he wants to be kind to Mary that he's just toward her. See, being a just man, it would be absolutely inappropriate for him to proceed with the marriage if she had been immoral. Justice demanded that he indeed divorce her. Now, he doesn't want to shame Mary. He determines that he has to divorce her, but he's going to do it quietly, which means he's going to do the right thing, but he wants to do it in the most compassionate way possible. And so, if you can just, again, we don't know how long the tension, right? But I can imagine if you're in Joseph's shoes, being in Joseph's shoes, he's heartbroken, dismayed at this whole thing. He's absolutely shocked. This isn't the person I thought Mary was. And his plans are dashed. Now, what he assumes to be true, again, we the reader are already given that relief in advance, but we know this is, this is no less than the miracle of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, the virgin, and implanting the human embryo of the God-man in her womb without the aid of a human man. Now, just ponder that. I mean, we go over it. We read the story. But it's something that has never happened before, and it is something that will never happen again. This is a unique moment in human history. We see it as glorious. Joseph sees it without that knowledge as a horror. So now he's thinking, how do I get the divorce going? And the angel comes to him in a dream in the night to rescue him from what he thinks is the right thing. An angel of the Lord, we're told, appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, he's addressed, Joseph, son of David. That son of David, that's significant. It matters because 
of who this is, right? As, as Joseph's adopted son, which he will be, Jesus will also be in the line of David. And that's just one part of the puzzle. So that thing that Mary had known, that she had been told, perhaps she even told Joseph himself, by herself had told Joseph, it is now confirmed to him by the Lord. And, and the angel says, do not fear. Proceed with the marriage. Mary is innocent. This is God's doing. This child is special. Now, again, I'm, I'm trying to get into Joseph's mind, and we don't need to speculate too much, but I wonder, does he get it all? Is he putting it all together yet? I, I, I kind of want to believe that, that God is gracious here to Joseph to help him and help him understand that this ties the scriptures together that he had learned about Messiah to the immediate events that he's experienced. But here's the question I have. Do things get easier for Joseph? He knows Mary's innocent. That's great. He can proceed and he does with the, with the marriage. Her godly character is intact. Joy, joy, joy. He does that. He obeys the Lord, proceeds, Right? And this absolute joy of, of knowing that, that God has done this miracle in Mary's life, that they're somehow part of God's saving plan. This is glorious news. But in another sense, this becomes a much more difficult path than the one he had envisioned. It is, to be sure, God's better plan. But he's got to be thinking what he and Mary and a few others around him understood to be divine revelation, right? How is he going to explain it? How is he going to explain it to his family? How, how is he going to tell his own parents, his relatives, his friends, a virginal conception? And I can imagine his friends just sitting him down and go, dude, here's biology, right? Really? You're going to give me that? You're going to blame God? Maybe thinking that he is responsible, that he somehow violated that chastity that was required of him. Thinking he's under delusion. Joseph, <laughs> come on. And as he imagined, Joseph, that is to say, imagined his own future with Mary, what if people don't believe the story? Would there be ridicule? Should he prepare himself for the whispers behind the back? And as we move forward through the gospel story, again, not, we're not told much more about Joseph, but, but this, in fact, does happen. Joseph's, not to mention Mary's own reputation and Jesus' reputation would certainly suffer for people who did not believe. We find out later it was the talk of the town. John chapter 8, we find there that Jesus, in responding to accusations from the Pharisees, he was telling them of his own relationship with his father. Verse 41 of that chapter. They, these Pharisees, they outright accuse Jesus. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. See the implication? That was the talk. You're, you're just the illegitimate child. And we see that what happened here is God took Joseph's good plan, changed it, modified it, and gave him a better one. But it wasn't an easy path. That's the point. And I think this is instructive for us. God's better plan, that plan for each of us who embrace Jesus as Messiah is not a path of ease. 
So if you have put your faith in Christ, you've got to understand what it means to follow him. What did Jesus say? This was discussed in the Sunday school class this morning. Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And we look at that verse in light of Jesus' own cross. But he's, he's speaking to a crowd saying, you've got to do this. And, and all it means to them is like, you've got to embrace the instrument of your public execution and die. You've got to deny yourself. That's the way. You've got to actually consider yourself dead in all your desire. Deny yourself and follow me. See, there's a cost to trusting and following Jesus. It will cost you everything that this world offers up. Everything, I should say, that is opposed to Jesus' authority and really closer to home for each of us. It calls us to give up everything that our rebellious heart longs for. Now, this time of the year, and I would say in this part of the world, this part of the world likes to venerate baby Jesus. But I think we all get this. They don't want Jesus to grow up. The world doesn't want to hear that everything in the Bible is words that Jesus would absolutely, are words that Jesus would absolutely affirm. And that not one single one of the commands in the Bible has been abrogated. Not one. Jesus himself said, not the, the smallest punctuation mark of the law will pass away. Now, the world loves a Jesus that they've fashioned in their rebellious hearts and minds. But know this, the real Jesus said, if the world hates you, and that's the assumption, not that possible, but that the world will indeed hate you. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. See what the world wants? They want personal autonomy. I know this is a hot topic these days, right? They want authority. They want decisional authority to say what we want to say about how we're created, male, female, something in between. I decide. Not God, not creation. I decide. What the world says about marriage, they say love is love. The Bible doesn't say that. God's word, and again, this is today, in another generation, it's going to be some other issue, right? God's word has supreme authority over marriage. It has supreme authority over gender and a host of other things. And if you truly believe and follow Jesus, you will embrace his word, but that's going to be costly. Costly. But... Here's the warning again with a promise. We read this together. Or no, I think this came up in Sunday school. I don't remember. But anyway, this is the word. Oh, we read this together. Yes. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And here's the promise. And where I am, there will my servant be also. That's the reward. 
it's going to cost you. you. If you love your life in this world, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, that doesn't mean you loathe it and you want to end your life. It means you say, by comparison, this isn't that important. Far less important than looking to Jesus and following him. The reward, Jesus says, is where I am. And that means forever am. There will my servant be also. God's better plan. Well, third, I want to look at God's mercy revealed. There are a lot of things in creation that are just plain mysterious. I think we agree on this. Profoundly difficult to understand. Not, not impossible, but difficult. And, and we get this with scientific discovery. Things previously unknown are now understood. There's still yet much to discover. You know, we can harness electricity. We can cure bacterial infections with antibiotics. Not flawlessly, but we can often do that. I had this metallic mesh tube in my artery. As I looked at that little thing, the example of what they put in me, like 100 years ago, I'd be dead. It's amazing stuff. We can prevent you from getting COVID. Oh, wait, I must have wrote that several months ago. <laughs> well, we're trying. We're trying, right? But the point is, we, we, we don't have an answer to everything yet, do we? we? As humans, we chip away at the problem, try to figure it out. But the point I'm making here is that how much more perplexing are things in the theological realm, things in the God realm? How much more difficult to grasp with our tiny little finite minds the things of the infinite. You know, for example, the nature of one God, yet three persons. It's, a, it's an article of faith, but none of us can fully and absolutely exhaustively explain the Trinity. It's an article of faith we accept, but still mysterious. Here's another. A theological mystery that had been in place for centuries and I'll describe it this way. Since the, the disobedience of our first parents, right, Adam and Eve, and that sin nature that humanity inherited, how, here's the question, how can God forgive sin and welcome us into his eternal family? Now, before Jesus, okay? In the law, the Old Testament, there was a provision. A goat, bull, sacrificed a lamb, perhaps, that blood spilled out, the carcass burned on an altar before the Lord. Now, for centuries, that was just a simple article of faith. But I got to think, and think with me here, as people are doing that year after year, the priests do it on their behalf, how could this animal, how could this, this beast that we use for food or, or for wool or for pulling our carts or plowing our fields, how could that animal serve as a substitute for someone created in the very image of God. There's a bull, there's a human. How does the bull, a dumb animal, substitute for the sin of a human? I'm sure thinking people must have said, is it enough? And they had to keep doing it. So in, by nature, was there something insufficient about it? It was temporary. Now, of course, we're looking back, right? 
But now here, here in this dream, here in this moment, this angel comes to Joseph and brings to him this plan to resolve that mystery. He's told, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Well, there's more, but just pause there. A boy to be named Jesus, that's Jesus, Greek, Hebrew, Yeshua, Joshua. Well, maybe he's brought back, okay, in the law, Joshua led God's people to this place of rest. His name indicated that God had saved Israel from his enemies. But this, this, this Mary's son, this Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Now, I don't know. I don't know what Joseph was thinking in the moment. Did he put it all together? Now, Matthew editorializes here for us, verses 22-23, telling us that this is a fulfillment, in fact, of the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 7:14. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the one who will save his people from their sins. Now again, did Joseph connect the angelic announcement with those prophetic words? We don't know. Did he realize that this child that would be born to Mary was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53? Who would pour out his own soul to death? Who would be numbered with transgressors? Who would be bearing the sin of many? Did he understand that Jesus, this Jesus, was in every sense the God, the one and only Emmanuel God with us? Now, I don't doubt that to some degree he was aware of those messianic prophecies. But I don't know that we can really figure out, and I'm pretty sure of this, we can't figure out what he's thinking in the moment. Yet, what Joseph did was he obeyed. He obeyed that word of the Lord delivered by that angel, and he completed his marriage with Mary, and he named the child Jesus. That's what the text tells us. And as proof of his faith, and I think this is important, sometimes overlooked, as a proof of his own faith, Joseph was not physically intimate with his wife until after the birth of Jesus, so that in accordance with the scriptures, the virgin would conceive and the virgin Mary would bear a son. And this Jesus, which we celebrate this time of year, this Jesus would and has saved his people from their sins. And the, and the the insufficiency of that animal sacrifice, that sacrifice that could never permanently resolve that issue, Jesus would. That age-old problem. How can this, how can this work? Age-old problem resolved. And that's such, such great news for the world. That's good news. And it is great for the world but it's great for the world because it's great for you and me personally. See, I, I hope you know this. And if you're listening online or watching, your greatest need, your greatest need is not a job or a career or having enough stuff. Your greatest need is not being cured from cancer or having your marriage restored. Your greatest need is not anything less than your sins being forgiven so that you can stand as a righteous person before Almighty God. That is our greatest need. 
You see, what we need before God is to be counted righteous, and we have no way, no way of accomplishing that on our own. But Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And you know this. That's why he was born in Bethlehem. And that's why he died on a Roman cross, to wipe out the record of your sin. So the only thing, the only thing that we must first do, the thing that defines everything else in our lives, is look to him. Embrace Jesus as the divine son of God who bore your sin at the cross. Follow him. Believe in him as savior. Follow him as the absolute rule and authority over your life. He owns your ears. He owns your eyes. He owns your mouth. He owns the motivations of your heart. He owns you. And that's the difference. We compare ourselves to the rest of the world And we're not better. We're not more righteous in ourselves. We're not perfect. We're not wiser. We're not more talented. We're not more skilled. What we have is that we looked to Jesus and we said, there, there is my, as we sang earlier, my propitiation. There is my forgiveness. There is my eternal joy. There is the one who will order my life from this day forward. That's the difference. Well, the Bible passage gives us a perspective of the Messiah from Joseph's point of view. Again, thought about Joseph, putting the focus on Christ. And while it's not bad to imitate Joseph's moral uprightness, it's not a bad thing, what we're looking for as a result of this is what it means to wholeheartedly trust in Jesus the Christ. Know that it's costly. Put your faith in Christ. We're not going to skate through the world. You're going to be challenged at every turn. But hold on to him. And the reason we preach the word, the reason we keep putting the focus on Christ week in and week out here is so that we're reminded, cling, cling to him. A myriad of messages will flood into your TV screen, your iPad, your phone, wanting your attention and directing you to things that are small and eternally meaningless and insignificant. Whatever your expectations are today and always, may they be fully and eternally satisfied in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, grateful that you have sent your son, grateful that, that um, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with, with you, Father, and with people around him. We're grateful that he, he continued on his planned road to his own cross, where before you, on our behalf, he bore our sin. We're grateful that he did not remain in that tomb, but rose on the third day, proving that he was indeed God and guaranteeing eternal life for all all of us who put our faith in him. We thank you, Father, for that truth. We pray, fill our minds and our hearts with this reality, this season, and keep our hopes in Jesus who came to save his people from their sins. And Father, hold us in that faith as we await the day of his glorious return when every knee 
will bow before him, when every tongue will confess, yeah, he is Lord. Keep us faithful to that day, Father, for the glory of Jesus.